For me, fashion is a verb. So it's true fashion. You're listening to Wardrobe Crisis with Claire Press. Join me every week as we look at sustainability, ethics, and the business and madness of fashion. Hello, everyone. How are you doing? I got to tell you about my school. You know we've got a school, right? Well, an online course platform. Wardrobe Crisis Academy launched in May. And since then, we've had more than 450 students enroll in our first course. I'm so happy about this. I'm recording the next one in a couple of weeks. So I feel like I'm obsessed with education. And obviously, it's going to leak into the podcast, right? This episode, I feel, is kind of a masterclass, although it wasn't recorded to be that. But it's all about the complexities of polyester recycling. And we need a masterclass in this because it is so confusing. I keep seeing Instagram posts that are kind of muddy on the information around this. And of course, everyone is worrying about greenwashing, including me. But polyester has been in the news more than normal recently because of a report by Changing Markets called Fossil Fuel Fashion. And it's all about the links between synthetic fibres and the fossil fuel industry. And they say that this presents a major obstacle to a circular economy. Okay, what about the numbers? More than half of all the textiles we're using today are polyester. And you probably know, you'll definitely have poly in your wardrobe, even if you're like me and you choose natural fibres obsessively. Polyester and nylon are just lurking everywhere. And I mean, sometimes they're, they're the best choice or a good choice, aren't they? Exercise gear or swimwear. I can do without polyester lining in my silk dress. But this is our reality, right? Polyester is just everywhere and it's cheap. The apparel industry accounts for about half of all the polyester produced each year, and currently only approximately 14% of this comes from recycled inputs. Do you want to know how much we use if you like numbers? So the apparel industry uses around 32 million tonnes of polyester every year. Crackers. Hence, the Textile Exchange, which is a fantastic not-for-profit organisation that's all about preferred, more sustainable fibres and standards and certifications, they've set this target for the industry. They want them to reach 45% of recycled inputs for poly by 2025. By the way, if you do fancy taking our six-week course, Sustainable Fashion 101, we've got a new cycle launching on November the 1st. You can just email us hello at clairepress.com to find out more. But on the course, there's a module with Claire Bergkamp, and she is the COO of Textile Exchange. But when we did the pod, which was episode 73, she was at that time sustainability director at Stella McCartney. And she's amazing. And on our course, she kind of talks all about why do we have to move away from virgin polyester and how are we going to do it? But The question is, how do we make polyester in the first place? Have you ever wondered? Everyone, I think, knows that it's plastic. It's synthetic. It's derived from petroleum. But then what? How do they actually do it, make it, get it to the fabric stage? And how do we make the recycled version? Did you know that recycled poly, also called RPET, meaning recycled polyethylene terephthalate, is actually almost always made from recycled plastic bottles, not from recycled textiles. Or that said fibre is of a lower quality than the plastic used in those bottles because when you're processing and heating it, it degenerates it. Also, you might have heard the oft-quoted Instagram favourite tile stat 
that less than 1% of used textiles are recycled into new textiles. And maybe you listened to last week's ep with the amazing Liz Ricketts, all about waste colonialism. So you're going to know that currently it's just very unlikely that your sustainable recycled polyester garment will be recycled again or re-recycled at the end of its life. So should we be calling this downcycling? We're going to talk about that. And why do we want more of it then if it sucks so much? Well, recycled is always better than virgin. That's obvious, right? Because you've dug that fossil fuel out of the ground already. So if you can reuse it, then you're going to be cutting your footprint. Now, according to a study by the Swiss Federal Office for the Environment, it requires 59% less energy to make our pet than using virgin stuff. Oof, (laughs) right? There's just, it's so much. There's a lot, there's a lot to digest. But our guest this week is here to help. She is Cindy Rhodes founder of Worn Again Technologies and the co-founder of World Circular Textiles Day, which actually just happened on October the 8th. You're going to love Cindy. She's fab and she's got a long history of disrupting fashion. She used to run events in London in the 2000s. They were called anti-apathy. We'll talk all about that and the kind of heady days of the early London upcycling scene. I love it. One more thing, this, if you're just watching news headlines about Polly, who does that apart from me, but anyway, there was uh, another study came out very recently after we'd recorded this and it's uh, one by H&M and Ikea, spotlighting the potential for contaminants to lurk in these recycled textiles made from post-consumer waste. But you will hear about 10 minutes in, Cindy refer to this problem of some, not all, of the current textile recycling processes for synthetics, hard to say all that at once, retaining the contaminants, so things like dyes and chemicals. Now, Warner Gaines process strips these out completely to produce what Cindy calls virgin equivalent building blocks. Okay, like I said, there's a lot to consider in this one. Let us know what you think. Uh, Drop us a line on Instagram or Twitter. I'm at Mrs Press. And remember... You can find all the links and find out about Warn Again over at thewardrobecrisis.com. Let's get to it. Cindy Rhodes, welcome to the Wardrobe Crisis podcast. I'm so happy we're doing this. Thank you, Claire. I am too. It's really exciting. You're joining us from a slightly unusual uh, location or home, if you like. Tell us where you are. Well, yes, I've been holed up here for the past 18 months, for the most part, in my canal boat in East London. But the benefit of that is that I'm able to move my home. So lockdown for me was a little bit more interesting because I, at times I could move around and go to nice locations in fields and countryside. I always think it's quite romantic, the idea of living on a boat. Yes, apart from in the winter when you're emptying your toilets and you have to go and fill with water when you've run out of water, taking a shower, all that bit is maybe not so romantic. But overall, I absolutely love it. Is it a sustainable way to live? Because presumably it's like a floating tiny house and you're not wasting space. You're not even on the mains electricity, are you? Yeah, exactly. I think it depends how you do it. I live completely off grid. So I have solar panels that charge batteries in my engine room and I have to manage the power that I use. I have to, you know, I tend to charge the computer in the 
early part of the day so that the batteries keep charging. Uh, you know, you have to be aware of your water use so you can't take long showers. We still have the issue of um, using a wood-burning stove, so coal and wood, which is not great. Uh, but I'm hoping to shift to a pellet stove, which don't emit any CO2. So, yeah, all sorts of ways of doing it. But I think overall, because you're conscious of the way you're living and the resources you're using, it really brings a lot of these things to life for you. But we're here to talk about Worn Again Technologies. Do you want to just begin by telling us where it is and what you do there? Sure. So our main research takes place in a lab in Nottingham in England. And at the lab, we have been in development for about nine years of a polymer recycling technology that's able to break down non-rewearable textiles. We capture and purify the raw materials to go back into supply chains as new. So we focus on polyester and cotton textiles. We also have a pilot plant in the north of England in Redcar, which is near Newcastle. And we're also in the design phase of the demonstration plant, which is essentially the mini version of the industrial process. Okay, you're not a scientist, but of course you do work with scientists and chemical engineers in the lab. One of your co-founders is a chemist whose name is Adam Walker. But in his absence, give us a quick explainer on some of this stuff before we get into the discussion. I feel like everybody listening to this knows that polyester and nylon are derived from petrochemicals, but how? Do you want to give us just a quick explainer, like an idiot's guide on how virgin polyester is manufactured? Yeah, I will have a stab at it. And indeed, Dr. Dr. Adam Walker is our chief scientific officer, who's the brains behind the technology that we've been developing. And, and actually, I don't know a heck of a lot about virgin polyester production because we're doing something totally different. But what we do know is that we want to move away from virgin production and to circular remanufacturing of, of polyester, for instance. In terms of virgin polyester, so starting with petroleum, it gets extracted from the earth using giant drills and machines. It gets sent to refineries, which uses huge amounts of, of energy to break down the molecules, which is called cracking, into different ingredients. And then in the case of polyester, the two main ingredients, ethylene glycol and terephthalic acid, these are uh, produced through cracking and they're also known as monomers or the building blocks for polyester. I'm going to jump in there. Monomer, that means single, right? Yes, exactly. Exactly. And the next step in the process, they're brought together through a process of, of polymerization, which uses more heat and more energy to make polymers, which a polymer is a chain of monomers. And that becomes polyethylene, terephthalate, or what we commonly know as polyester or PET. Thank you. I think that this is complicated, but it's really important for us to actually get our heads around the process because we always talk about, oh, it comes from oil. But people have a hard time imagining that then there is a dress fabric. So thank you. That was great. Okay. What about recycled polyester? So how is that made? This is another one we, you know, most people are familiar with our pet, recycled pet, primarily made from plastic bottles. That's how we know our pet today. And it's essentially sorting out plastic bottles, the clear, the colored, taking the clear bottles, melting them down, extruding them 
into fiber. And it's quite a simplistic process because there's not a heck of a lot of decontamination in that. We just take clear bottles, melt them down. And it is a relatively sustainable material in that we're saving bottles from being thrown away. But I think what a lot of people don't know is that the quality of PET in bottles and packaging is much higher than for uh, PET that we use for, for textiles. So it's measured in something called intrinsic viscosity or molecular weight. Don't ask me to explain that. But we don't actually need a really high quality of molecular weight to make textiles as we do with bottles. Well, could you call it downcycling then? It's exactly downcycling. And so once bottles become textiles, they're unlikely to be turned back. And I think what's starting to happen now is with this whole movement towards circularity, the bottles and packaging industry, are they're starting to realize, hey, hold on a second. We want to be circular too. We're going to keep our resources in our own loops. So this need for the textile industry to move towards textile to textile is essential if we want to become truly circular. Because we're in the not too distant future, the bottling industry is just going to start pulling back all their bottles. There's so much in this, but I feel like often we read marketing claims and you know, good news sustainability stories that will say, and it's made from plastic bottles. And the perception is that Fashion's doing a good turn to the environment by collecting all these plastic bottles that would otherwise be landfilled and turning them into this better product, a pair of leggings, a dress, whatever it is. But in fact, the story you just told is quite different. It's technically a downcycling process because you're reducing the quality, although perhaps you're making something that would last longer. I don't know. depends how you look at it. But actually, it's really complicated. It's not simply a case of recycled polyester is awesome because it's rescued that plastic bottle from the bin. What I would say is that it's all we have today at scale. And so it's really important that this is a solution for today. But what we're moving towards is even better and much more effective and much more circular. So uh, by all means, you know, focus on our pet, buy our pet, because it is it's what we have available today. Okay, why aren't we recycling more clothes into clothes? So polyester back into polyester. And the latest stat that I have is from the Ellen MacArthur Foundation's New Textiles Economy Report, which comes from 2017. I've said it so many times on this show, but it's a little while ago, essentially, is what you need to know. And that stat is that less than 1% of textiles are recycled into new textiles. Do we think that's about right still? Absolutely. It's an astonishing figure. And I think, you know, all of these terms and terminology can get quite complex when we talk about recycling. It, you know, if you break that down, we're reusing much higher volumes. You know, reuses, depending on which region you are in the world, we're re-wearing clothing a lot more. Yeah, and I think that's actually really important to point out. Thank you, because often when we say that less than 1%, people go, oh, wow, that's dreadful. But it doesn't take into account sharing, re-wearing the secondhand economy. We're just talking about that changing of material into recycled material. Exactly, exactly. So, for instance, we are collecting globally around 20% of all post-consumer textiles. So that's going off for reuse or downcycling and, you know, into insulation, furniture, stuffing, industrial wipers, 
All of that is good. And again, it's all we've got today. And the reason for this, it comes down to mechanical recycling and chemical recycling. The reason today why we're unable to turn existing textiles back into new textiles, it's a little bit complex because we can in some ways, but it's primarily down to economic and technical limitations. Okay. So when, when it comes to mechanical recycling, there are some processes out there that are getting better. Um, but we have challenges. So for instance, if you've got a, a, a pure polyester shirt, you can collect lots of polyester shirts, melt them down, turn them back into new polyester, but you still have all the dyes, the contaminants, everything that went in at the beginning comes out in the fiber. That's a challenge. It's a limitation for design because you have to over dye it black. It can have quality issues, that sort of thing. And then the other big challenge is, you know, not everything is in a pure form. Many of our textiles, probably around 33% upwards is made up of blends. Let me just ask you about mechanical recycling versus chemical recycling, because I'm not sure everyone understands that. So mechanical is literally tearing the fiber apart, right? Shredding it. Exactly. It's a, it's a simpler form of recycling where textiles can be shredded and respun. So there's no manipulation of the molecules. Whereas chemical recycling, just really top level, is able to either break down the materials like polyester back down to polymers or even monomers, but also we're able to strip out all the dyes and contaminants. We're able to purify the raw materials in the case of PET to produce virgin equivalent building blocks. For cotton, it's a slightly different matter. It's a natural fiber. So when it goes through wear and tear, consumer use, washing, the, the fiber length reduces in size. So the quality reduces. So you can't really turn cotton back into cotton. You can blend it with virgin cotton to get a good quality. But essentially, if you want to chemically recycle it, the best way is to break it down and recapture the cellulose to then use that cellulose material to go back into cellulosic fiber. I mean, it's super complex and there are different variations of this, but the real limitations with mechanical recycling are to do with quality of output, not being able to separate polyester and cotton once they've been brought together. That's something that over the next three to five years is going to become a lot more prevalent. You started that completely different. Tell us a bit about that. Let's rewind. So you started wanting to be a filmmaker and worked in music video, right? That's right. Yes. In my very early days, my, my age is going to come out in this. That's okay. Um, experience and wisdom. Wisdom. <laughs> <laughs> I started out in, in the creative industries, really excited about filmmaking, telling stories. I started film production in Los Angeles and did about a year working in films there as a runner, bottom of the heap. Really excited. I've done that. That's just getting ordered around and getting the coffee, isn't it? <laughs> Making tea, yeah, and picking people up and dropping them off. But it was exciting when you're, you know, 19, 20 years old. And um, then I moved to London on a whim and ended up, I've been here ever since, and continued in filmmaking, music videos, commercials, and then more factual-based programming. But Really, I, it was a gradual shift. As I was doing filmmaking, my personal interests started to 
evolve. It, and it was round about the time of the, I don't know if you remember, of the WTO protests in Seattle. That was about 1999. The World Trade Organization, where people were on the streets, not just activists, but uh, workers, uh, people from all walks of life were out protesting and making noise about issues which became known as globalization. Yeah. And it, it really sparked my interest because I thought, well, what's getting all of these people so excited to get out on the street and do something about it? And so that's when I started getting very interested in global economics, politics, and kind of what made the world tick. You told me actually the other day when we were prepping for this that you'd read Naomi Klein's No Logo and you said it awakened something in you. Well, that's right. It was Naomi Klein's No Logo. I also started reading about the roots of poverty, inequality, and environmental issues. And, you know, there were a whole host of authors like Naomi Klein, Paul Hawken, Vandana Shiva, Hunter Levins, and they were all talking about nature-based economics. And I thought, you know, why aren't we bringing these together? Why aren't we thinking about our economic system as a living system? And that's when I was introduced or I came across the New Economics Foundation here in London, who they still exist. Uh, they're a think and do tank. That's a good tagline, isn't it? Yes. It's not just about thinking. It's how can we change systems and doing things better? And it was all about, you know, getting a better balance between economics, society and the environment. And it, it just makes perfect sense. It makes sense, but how do you do that? And that's what really got me excited. Yeah, but you told me that you went to some of their meetings and you were like, this is very important in terms of the message you're putting across, but why is everyone the same and a little bit dusty and dry? <laughs> you actually said to me, 25 blokes in a room. <laughs> yeah. there, were, there were some women, but it was, it was just a quiet environment and everyone was sitting, listening to speakers talk about these issues and it was a very staid format. And I thought, hold on a second, these issues affect all of us. And to be fair, I think it was predominantly women working there. And, and you find that in circularity. So many of the people driving this area are, are, are female. Actually, you raise a really interesting point, because if we look at prominent environmental activists and scientists, they're often old white men. And yet the women are running the show behind the scenes. The women are the ones actually running the organizations. And yet the famous voices, apart from Naomi Klein, often tend to be men and white men at that. Anyway, back to what you thought when you were in this environment, listening to this important message, you had an idea. What was it? So I thought more people need to be hearing about this. What can I do to get my friends to come along to something like this. So I came up with the idea of something called anti-apathy. It was a series of evening events held in a nightclub where we brought together speakers, experts on topics, live music, poets, films, and booze, the kind of ultimate, you know, put that in front of any of your friends and, and it's a winner. And so we held these anti-apathy events on different themes. It was food, money, fashion, and we explored the issues behind them. And I think that the ambition for it or the mission for anti-apathy was all about engaging wider audiences in social environmental issues and providing hope and kind of giving people ideas of the one thing that they can do. 
So whether it's switching to an ethical bank account or getting renewable energy, you know, there's so many things that individual actions people can do on their own. And and that was the purpose behind it. While you were still working, you had co-founders too on this organization, you got into the shoe business. That was where you started upcycling, right? Well, exactly. It was actually a guy called Galahad Clark who came to an anti-apathy event on the theme of money. And uh, Galahad Clark, for those who don't know, is a seventh generation Clark's shoe guy. He calls himself a cobbler. And back then he had a company called Terraplana and they were doing sustainable footwear. And he came to this event and thought, wow, I mean, there's a huge buzz. There's a huge crowded nightclub in London listening to a talk about global economics. And so he approached me and said, I would love to do a line of footwear with you, give the proceeds to anti-apathy and, you know, see what we can do. And I said, well, funny you should mention that. I've just set up a, a company called Worn Again. I hadn't been doing anything apart from some upcycled military jackets with junky styling who we might come back to. And I said, look, it's called Worn Again. If you can do a line of footwear made out of end of use textiles, call it Worn Again, then we're off to the races. And that's what we did. And that's how it started. They were making shoes and it was kind of bringing those two ideas together. I love that you just mentioned junky styling. They were a kind of first wave sustainable fashion brand in in London in the 90s. We don't hear about them anymore. I had heard of them because in a previous episode with Tamsin Lejeune, and we'll share a link, she'd mentioned them. But I feel like there were these pioneer labels that were really laying the groundwork for a lot of what we see today, but that they've potentially been a bit forgotten by designers now who maybe think they're just inventing this today when in fact there's like this 20-year path to getting here. And it's not just Vivian Westwood and Catherine Hamlet. Exactly. I mean, it's been a real evolution. And I think when we started out in 2005 with our Worn Again trainers, it it was a really exciting time. And there was a huge amount of activity happening. I and mean, these were the real rabble rousers, I call them, or the visionaries, the real pioneers of, of sustainable fashion. You had junkie styling who were taking old men's suits and upcycling them into really high fashion pieces. Uh, love their clothes. From somewhere, an upcycling business set up by Ursula de Castro with her partner, Filippo Ricci. Oh gosh, there were so many. Pachacuti, uh, the hat brand, Panama Hats from Kerry Summers, Terraplana, THTC, the hemp trading company, they're still going today. And what was brilliant was all of these companies had set up from a place of values. That's what drove them to set up these companies. And it was almost like the products were a byproduct of that. They wanted to build these businesses around these values of transforming the fashion industry. And, you know, you also had back then Aesthetica at London Fashion Week, which featured all the up up and coming brands. And even Christopher Rayburn, he, he designed... When we shifted from footwear to bags and accessories, he designed a range for us out of hot air balloons. So again, it was like this kind of bubbling era of people, as well as educators. I mean, you've had a lot of them on the program, Dillis Williams, uh, Sandy Black, Becky Early, Kate Goldsworthy. I mean, they're all, there was this time where there was an awakening and everyone was just trying to piece it all together. 
as you've mentioned, Becky Early and Kate Goldsworthy, let's just take a second to promote World Circular Textiles Day, which you co-founded with them and Gwen Cunningham. Is that right? That's right. From Circle Economy. Yeah. And so what is it? Well, World Circular Textiles Day came about after the pandemic hit and we all started wondering what the hell is going to happen to circularity? What's going to happen to the end of use textile supply chain, reuse, and, and all of these things we've been working on for so many years. We we all got together. We had numerous conversations where we were talking about the issues, and we realized the one thing about circularity that was missing was everyone's talking about now. What do we need to be doing? What are the challenges? What do we need to overcome them? And we kind of had this idea, why don't we try and imagine what circularity could look like once it's fully achieved once all products are in you know kept in continual circulation once all materials are recaptured from those products and kept in circulation and we move away from the use of virgin resource use so we had this idea of what it could look like we had this idea of celebrating progress that's been made so far but recognizing the long road it's going to take to actually get there and that's where it came from so we went out and we invited many of the brands and companies and supply chain and circularity businesses to get involved and to become signatories so that we as a small group were kind of volunteering our time to do this, but we could shine a light on the progress that's happening every year and we can hold the industry to account and really map out what those stepping stones are going to be to get to 2050, which is when we think full circularity will be reached. Let's just get back to Warn again. So you've told us a story of starting, I don't know if you were on your kitchen table, but certainly quite a small business where you were upcycling shoes and then you moved on to bags. I know you did some stuff with Richard Branson. How did you then move into this area of basically R&D? Very good question. And it, it has been a long, it's been a long road of R&D because I think upcycling was part of that path where, yes, we did spend days, weeks, months, tearing apart Eurostar uniforms so that they could be made into a train manager's bag and decommissioned hot air balloons, cutting them up so that the manufacturer didn't have to do them and we could manufacture in the UK, but it costs more. Like It had so many challenges trying to upcycle rubbish that got us to understand the challenges behind textile recycling. And, you know, first and foremost, over a couple of years, we finally realized that upcycling as a business model is really hard to make it work at scale. But also, I mean, ultimately, we weren't solving the problem of textile waste. Once these Second Life products were used as a bag, you know, once they were used as a Second Life product, you know, they would end up in landfill anyway. So we were only postponing textiles going to landfill. What it made us realize was that recycling was the solution, but not textiles into Second Life products, recycling at a molecular level. One of my previous business partners, Jamie Burdett, it was around 2010, 2011, where we realized this idea of molecular recycling was key. And so we went over to Japan to visit a company called Tejin, who have been doing chemical recycling for polyester since 1992, I believe. And we went and saw this massive plant and saw what they were able to do. And it was really exciting. And we just knew that this was the solution. 
chemical recycling is the solution. We now just need to figure out how to do it. You've just mentioned Tejin, known for their recycled poly in Japan. I also sent you a press release, a recent one, about ISCO, the Turkish denim manufacturer working with HK Rita, which is the Hong Kong Research Institute of Textiles and Apparel. Now, their method is hydrothermal, which I didn't understand. You do something different. So there's all these different processes within chemical recycling. I wonder if you could just explain that for us. Absolutely. Essentially, there's a handful of technologies taking very different approaches. Some take monomaterials as feedstock input, like pure polyester, pure cotton. Some take blends. Also, the outputs from the processes can be different. You've got infinited fiber who are spinning directly to fiber. You've got RenewCell who's producing a cellulosic pulp that can then go into the fiber industry. There's such a diverse ar- array of, of approaches. And as you said, HK Reader use a hydrothermal process. With Warren, again, we've taken a, an approach that uses solvent dissolution to separate polyester and cotton to decontaminate the materials and to recapture those polymers from the big mix of textiles. So our inputs are pure polyester and polycotton. Our outputs are polyester pellets and a cellulosic pulp that can go into fiber spinning. And that the difference with our technology is that what we're doing on the polyester front is we're dissolving it and recapturing the polyester as a polymer rather than breaking it down to monomers, which means we don't have to build it back up again, which takes extra processing steps, extra energy, extra costs. We're just recapturing the polymer, restoring it back to its virgin equivalent and turning it back into a pellet. Yeah, there's quite a different array of approaches, but ultimately it's going to come down to environmental benefits. It's going to come down to cost of processes, a whole host of things like that. I wasn't aware of Britain being a huge engineering hub for textile recycling. You're kind of inventing it as you go along, right? Well, exactly. And we wouldn't be where we are today with this technology if we hadn't had a chance meeting or an introduction to Dr. Adam Walker. There was this big vision. We had dabbled in upcycling. And then we met Adam after we had made the realization that chemical recycling was a solution. And he just so happened to be working in polymer recycling for the past 10 years. So we were over here doing upcycling. He was doing his polymer recycling of other materials using solvents to dissolve polymers. And he hadn't worked in textiles yet or with polyester. And we just said, well, hey, this is what we're trying to do. Is it possible to do the same with polyester and cotton? And he said, of course, they're they're both polymers. And he made it sound very, very simple. Nine years later, (laughs) millions of pounds later, we're further along and we can now see light at the end of the tunnel. But it's hugely challenging, not only advancing the technology from, say, lab scale beaker up to a hundred liters up and up to, you know, bigger scaling. That's one thing, but raising the finance to do that, bringing the technology partners together, it takes a team of dedicated people that all buy into the vision to really make it happen. And, you know, we've been fortunate with our investors. H&M came in very early on 
Caring, which was actually, it was Puma who we approached very early on. We, we had this idea, we had our proof of concept from the lab, said, hey, this is what we're doing. Do you want to get involved? Because we know this is going to take a long time and a lot of money. And they both said, well, yeah, this is the future. We'll get involved. I don't think they knew either how long of a road this was going to be. But you know, we're in it together. And without that, it wouldn't have happened. You know, more recently in 2017, we brought in new partners, our strategic investors, like our, our chemical engineering company from uh, Switzerland called Sulzer Chemtech. Again, it's about bringing the puzzle pieces together because an idea is one thing, but there's so much else needed to bring it through to commercialization. And, and there's still a long road to go. We were talking before about this and I've been aware of Warn Again for many years, but I said to you, what are you working on? You know, that's such a fashion thing to say, isn't it? What's your news? What are you launching? And you said, nothing. We're busy working behind the scenes and we're getting there. But it's not about saying, and this month, this, it, it just doesn't work like that, right? It's a very different timeline than the fashion industry is used to, you know, churning over, designing a new product, getting it through production. You can do that relatively quickly. Whereas it is just so painstakingly slow taking a, a technology from lab to industrial plant. Um, but equally, mm. I think we chose the most difficult challenge, which is blends. I mean, some technologies are going for monomaterials, being able to take cotton, break that down, turn that back into cellulose, back into yarn and fabric again. Others are doing polyester only. But I think we realized that if you can't do polyester and cotton together, it's going to be challenging because, well, there's a lot of cotton out there, pure cotton, and there's a lot of polycotton blends. But what we found in some of the sorting trials we've done is that we've only found about 6% pure polyester. So polycotton is a really important one to tackle. Let's finish up by talking about polyester. Polyester has been in the news perhaps more than usual lately as a couple of key reports have been out talking about the links between polyester and the fossil fuel industry, but also about the huge growth in polyester production. It's grown ninefold in the last 50 years. The report in question is by Changing Markets. It's called Fossil Fuel Fashion, The Hidden Reliance of Fast Fashion on Fossil Fuels. And one of the arguments that this makes, and I'm going to quote from it, I've got it written here, is historical and projected growth of synthetic fibres has become the backbone of the prevailing unsustainable fast fashion business model, which is driving runaway consumption and presents a major obstacle to a circular economy. And as I said, the report also looks at that link between basically fossil fuel companies are profiting off polyester and fashion. What do you think of that? Because that that's hard for you, isn't it? Because you've got all these headlines basically saying move away from synthetics. And we haven't even talked about microfiber pollution. Exactly. Well, there's so many different layers to what you've just asked there. And I'll try and reel some of them out. I think when it comes to the fossil fuel companies, polyester represents only 1% of the oil market. So it's not a huge one. So my argument would be, you know, stop focusing on expanding the sale of virgin oil byproducts to go into polyester and get involved in the scale up. In fairness, though, this report does say that it's projected to nearly double by 2030. So the production of virgin polyester. So there's going to be more profits from polyester to these companies. Well, if the industry, if the fashion industry stands up and says, we are moving to circular, 
the supply chain will follow. And that's what we need is the loud voices. The challenge is, is that you get a lot of these reports these days, and they're focusing on the industry today, on virgin production. They're not looking at what circular polyester will mean. Because, you know, if you say ban polyester, what are you going to do with it all? It's everywhere. It's in all of our textiles. It's a perfectly good feedstock to become circular. It's man-made, so you can build it back up to a virgin equivalent quality. So I would say we need to keep our global pool of polyester for textiles in textiles. Just keep recirculating it. Yes, we need solutions to microfibers. That's an absolute big one. And, and that's another complicated topic. But we need to keep it in circulation. We already have it. I would say the thing we need to start focusing our energy on is stop talking about banning polyester in textiles. Let's ban new polyester from going into textiles. Let's move to circular. The challenge is the timeline. Like the demand to move to circular is here now. Everyone wants it, but the industrial scale processes aren't there yet. And if you think about it, I mean, the numbers in polyester and what we're producing every year, the figure I always use is over 62 million tons of virgin polyester, virgin cotton, and cellulosics being used every year to produce textiles. And if we want to move for those resources to become circular, can you imagine the number of processing plants that need to be commissioned all around the world to do that? It's going to take a lot of infrastructure change, a lot of new plants, and a huge amount of coordination to make that happen. But that's the focus that's needed. I mentioned there were two reports. There's another one, a, a smaller study. It was a poll of something like 2,000 Brits commissioned by an organisation called A Plastic Planet. And basically, they asked people, do you know that polyester clothes are made out of plastic? <laughs> do you know that fashion has an impact on plastic pollution? And most people were like, no, never heard of it. And then eight out of 10 wanted brands to clearly label whether plastic is present in their clothing and accessories. Now, this, this organisation, A Plastic Planet, it's quite nice. I mean, it was founded by two, shall we say, ordinary women in 2017. Their names are Frederica Magnusson and Sean Sutherland. And they were just, it's very relatable. They they started it on packaging because they were just sick of being in the supermarket, seeing all the plastic. And, you know, I relate to that kind of feeling of just, you cross and you want to change it. And now they've got this, this new campaign called Plastic Free Fashion. But I wanted to ask you about that because I think without being scientifically accurate or even knowing about the complexity behind some of these issues, we just feel emotional, like plastic makes us cross. I totally agree. And I completely, I understand it. I have empathy for it. I'm, I'm you know, we're all in the same boat here, literally. No, we're not. <laughs> <laughs> Only you are in your boat, sorry. Metaphorically. I've spoken to Sean and, you know, I think what they're doing is absolutely great. They're raising awareness. They're bringing these issues to the forefront. They're asking people what, what they want. But I think what's really important is that it has to be put into context. Plastic for food is a very different kettle of fish than plastic in, in textiles. And there's a reason we're using polyester in textiles. There are environmental reasons for it. There are benefits to it. There are cost benefits. There are all sorts of pros to using polyester. And I think going forward, it's really important to put these issues into context. We can't talk about one 
fiber in isolation. You know, we have to talk about polyester with cotton, with cellulose, with the other uh, materials that we're using and create like a, a portfolio of fibers within planetary boundaries based on LCAs, based on the scientific data to say, well, what fibers can the planet handle and in what volumes and how much regenerative agriculture can we manage? Because with circularity, it's going to be a totally different world than we than we have today. Two-part question to end on. The first one is what will it take to get there? And the second one, which I'd like you to end on, is what's your vision for what that flourishing, lovely system could look like if we did get there? <laughs> Very deep and brilliant questions. I think, firstly, this idea of a circular system is beautiful and I think it's achievable. And if we look to nature for solutions, it makes sense. I think circularity of products is a lot closer at hand because it's about new business models. You've got the cutes in the background making a lot of noise. I don't know if you can hear that. It's bad. Could you just tell us what a coot is? <laughs> a coot is, I guess it's like a pigeon, but on water. Uh, <laughs> they're very loud and we get a lot of baby coots. squeaky. <laughs> um, you know, circularity of products, much easier, much quicker. And we can galvanize the industry to get those new systems and business models in place around re-commerce, around rental, reuse. Absolutely doable circularity of raw materials is going to take longer. It's going to take infrastructure change, investment, new plants, but it is achievable and it makes sense. And I'll tell you why. That phrase circular economics, it's got the word economics in it for a reason, because the economics are going to work. You know, from a monetary perspective, everyone can benefit from this new model. The social angle, it's going to produce new jobs. The environmental angle, it's a billion times better than throwing textiles into landfill. Like they're perfectly good resources, yet we're throwing the majority of them away. So it's in some ways, it's a much more intelligent system. And why we haven't figured this out sooner, I don't know. I think we we understand the puzzle pieces now. And we're in the early days of circularity where the industry is starting to put it together. But we need more good news stories. We need to think, imagine what it could look like so that people get excited by it and know what we're trying to build towards. Okay. So you said we need good news stories and also to vision hold on what it might be like. See it, I guess, to believe it. Go on then. <laughs> So I can imagine a world where products go through multiple cycles, multiple owners again and again and again until they wear out. They're then broken down into raw materials to go back into new textiles. But to do that, I can imagine we're going to need advanced textile sorting facilities where textiles and products are collected or they're reprocessed close to the source of collection. They either go into product reuse loops or they go into processes like ours and Renew Cells and Cirques and all the others in development where the raw materials get purified and go back into new spinning and new textile supply chains. And I can imagine 
this circular future, for me, it feels like we're going to evolve to an idea where we have more regional textile hubs. Materials are reprocessed very close to the source of collection. We may have continental textile hubs where maybe Turkey acts as the production area for Europe and, you know, the States, maybe it's South America or somewhere. in the, And I can see these beautiful kind of you know, regional models for flows of materials. It's not just products, it's flows of materials. There's no more waste to landfill. And it doesn't mean that we're not going to have international trade. That will definitely be a part of it. Fashion is multifaceted, it's diverse, and there is no one size fits all for circularity. But I think if we can imagine what it could look like and we imagine the benefits of it, on all fronts, economic, social, and environmental, then we're going to ask ourselves, why haven't we been fighting and making this happen sooner? Thank you for listening to Wardrobe Crisis. You can find the show notes for each episode over on our website, www.thewardrobecrisis.com. And that's where you can also sign up for our free sustainable fashion newsletters. I hope you've enjoyed the show. I'd love you to help us spread the word. Tell a friend, share on social media, or leave us a rating and review in Apple Podcasts. It really helps new listeners find us on the app. You can get in touch with us on social media. The show is on Instagram at The Wardrobe Crisis, and I'm on there too. And on Twitter, I'm at Mrs. Press. Because I love you Because I love you